0: University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. I'd like you to join me in a time of community prayer. Yeah, the challenging aspect of being followers of Christ is so much about what we are called to. It's so countercultural. And we live in a day and age where sometimes it's difficult to own our choices. Own the bad ones, own the good ones. I think sometimes the most difficult thing in our society is to say, I'm sorry, I got this wrong. So this morning we invite all of us into a time of uh, a time of confession. Now this is a responsive confession that we'll do together. Uh, the word and the response this morning uh, would be, Lord, have mercy. Uh, and so I'll be offering a prayer, and throughout the prayer, um, I'll be uh, inviting you to respond with me and saying, Lord, have mercy. We'll pray with one another. You call to follow in your footsteps. And yet sometimes we falter. And so we pray that you reach out your hands and bring us close to you. Whisper our name into our souls and remind us that you have called us into greatness, into humility, into something different. Gracious God, you are slow to anger and swift to blessing, forgiveness, and restoration. And so we pray this morning, Lord, have mercy. Forgive us for the things that we have done and not done. Forgive us for the things that we have said and not said. Forgive us for the life we have lived and not lived. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy. That we might reflect the image of the one we profess to follow in thought and word and deed, in discovering our true selves, drawn to others. May you pull us out of darkness and into your radiant light. And so we pray, Lord, have mercy a hearts that stand firm, a faith that is strong, and a hope that endures. In Jesus' name, we pray. Anybody remember the 1981 classic "Working for the Weekend"? It was by Loverboy. You know the song. Everybody, okay. Again, we would play it up here on the screen and live stream, but worry about YouTube's algorithm uh, shutting us down completely. Okay, so there is a reason that Loverboy pretty much faded out after 1981. But that song is still relevant for the majority of Americans today. In fact, a recent Gallup poll found that 52.3% of those reported their unhappy at work. Unhappy is not a lot compared to the 70% that said they hated their job. And I can think of a few things that I truly hate in this world. The New England Patriots, the Dallas Cowboys. And the New York Yankees, just for starters. So getting my head around the fact that 70% of people hate their jobs. That's a lot of people going to work every single day, thinking to themselves about everywhere else they want to be, everything else they want to be doing, uh, somewhere else besides under the rule of this tyrannical dictator that is called law. And for the reality of the statistics to hit home, we must... Just suppose this to the fact that only 13% of people reported that they love their job. Only 13% of people say they love their job compared to 70% that say they hate their job. And so have you ever considered that our, our relationship to work is directly connected to our journey with Jesus? We're in our series Moneyball, why Jesus talks about money and work and busyness. And we've looked at that Jesus talks about these things a lot. Over twenty-five percent of the time. And when Jesus focuses in about work, he's not talking anything about evangelizing your work. In fact, Jesus is calling us to discover a healthy theology of our vocational calling. What if it matters what we do? Whether we speak behind a pulpit, crunch data, teach kids, provide legal services, draw blood or, or, or hold our households together, manufacturing pharmaceutical goods, there is a calling on our lives, to our vocation to use our giftedness and to pursue our passion. And what if we're missing out on a theology of work that drives us to why we work and how we work and the outcomes of our work? The reality of our work, it affects our lives. What we do for 20 to 60 hours a week, going into the office, whether are not, we actually have an office itself, shapes the way that we live our lives, interact with our families, spend our money, or lack thereof, and, and, and for our health. Work affects our life for good or for ill. And I especially think this is an important conversation as many of us are heading back into the office for the first time in seven weeks. Before. And for this, we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse one. Now, Jesus is going to share a parable, and Jesus often begins his parable with the kingdom of God is light, or the kingdom of heaven is light. Now, what Jesus is not talking about is our concept of of heaven, the distant place we go to when we die. In fact, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, he uses those terms interchangeably in the Gospels. He uses them both in the past tense, in the present tense, and also in the future tense. He's talking about the kingdom of God as if it's something among us or around us or within us or through us or beyond us. And so when Jesus spoke in parables, he's trying to help his followers understand a little bit about what the kingdom is like. And for our purpose for the text, Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. It's giving us a glimpse into understanding how the kingdom of God functions. So Jesus says this in Matthew 20, verse 9. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and then sent them into his vineyard. So, this is an easy enough story for us to understand. There's a guy who goes out and he hires some workers and he agrees to pay them one day's worth of wages. It's a simple hire for service exchange. Except the landowner Jesus begins to tell in this story will then go out again at 9 a.m., and then at noon, and then at 3 p.m., and then at 5 p.m., bringing new workers and promising them all one day's worth of wages. What a generous business owner, giving so many works and and promising equal wages. But then Jesus goes on in verse 8. He says, When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them for their wages. Beginning with the last one hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and received one denarius. So when those who came were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Now who can forget National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? Frank Shirley, who uh, who graciously gave all of his employees a jelly of the month club membership uh, instead of Christmas bonuses. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Or who can forget other horrible bosses from movies? Remember the boss from Nine to Five, or Office Space, or The Devil Wears Prada, or The Godfather. You see, we've all had horrible bosses. I once had a senior pastor in one of the churches I served. I preached on a Sunday. I gave a minimal ribbing on his behalf in the sermon. The next day, I showed up at the office, and he looked at me, and he said, let's get a couple things straight. I am your boss. I am not your friend. And if you ever use me in a sermon again, I will fire you on We've all had horrible bosses. We've all had people that we've honestly can say have been some of the most difficult people we've ever had to work with. And if we were to interview the guys from Jesus' parables, The ones who were hired first and how they honestly felt about getting paid the same amount as somebody who just started at 5 o'clock in the day. I'm sure they would use some colorful language in Jesus' story. So let's be honest. We've all been in places and we've all had horrible balls. You've probably had a horrible boss from time to time, giving you absolutely no guidance on a project, or taking credit for the things that you've done, or disrespecting your opinion, or micromanaging you from the lies to vindictive jerks. We could all create a laundry list of the horrible bosses we've experienced in the workplace. And as it turns out, if you're unhappy at work, most likely it's because of your boss. In fact, nearly eight out of 10 people gave the reason for hating their job was the fact that their boss was for 60% of employees and another thing said that they blamed their boss for the most negative impact of their work to life. Yet as followers of Jesus, how do we come around this? How do we develop a healthy and life-giving theology of work and also deal with difficult bosses? What's the best thing to do? To quit? To become combative? To turn gossip and backroom chatter? To usurp the tyrant? Seriously, what's the answer? And I think this is an essential aspect of the theology of work is coming to terms with our bosses. Paul tried to wrestle with the early church who had members of the church of Colossia that were actually slaves being mistreated by their bosses. So stop and consider for just a second that no matter how awful your boss really is, it's nothing compared to the slavery. And Paul writes, to call them to a deeper theology in their work, He calls them by saying this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, close yourself with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another as any grievances you have against someone. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together. And if we can remove the impulse to blame, to point the finger, and to judge, If we could develop a healthy way to come around our difficult bosses, I think this is where it begins Paul is on to something. Despite what you think of him or her, whether they are the incarnation of the Emperor Nero or the far-distant relative of Sheba the Destroyer, your boss is a human being, a child of God. And if we take serious Jesus' words to treat other people in the way that we want to be treated, the difficult bosses are included in that as well. At the same time, we have to also understand that many of the people who lead us are also put in difficult places. Oftentimes, people are put in positions because of their success in their work, not because they've actually been tested and equipped to become leaders. Any of you had a, a professor who was an absolute genius in their field of study, but they were the worst when it came to teaching? Oftentimes, people are put into places of leadership because of their past experience, not because of what has prepared them for this movement. I think this parable raises another difficult challenge when it comes to our work, the work-related stress. Numerous studies have found that job stress is far and away the major stressor in American adult life, escalating progressively in the last couple of decades. 80% of workers report that they feel stressed at jobs, and and, and most would say, well, duh, it's it's work, and work is hard. But then it adds to this that 75% of people believe that that their work is, is more difficult than any generation before them. So what's the major stressor at your job? A portion of it can be contributed to their constant cycle of work in our lives, email, emails, texting, or phone calls. Most people and, and their employers, for that matter, have a hard time shutting off work at the end of the day and just goes home with us. More than 13 million workdays are lost every year because of job-related And stress has as much subjective as it is objective. Different people perceive jobs and challenges differently than other people and demand stress on their life. And most, it depends on the individual. There is no doubt that some jobs are are potentially more stressful, require more hours, or more demanding than any other job. And for many, chronic work leads to chronic problems of hypertension and ulcers, depression, from. of our work that we cannot control. However, there's a central aspect I think that God is calling us to have a healthy theology of work and it's called self-care. Let me be abundantly clear. There is a tremendous difference between self-centeredness and self-care. Self-centeredness is constantly choosing to think only of yourself. What's best for you without caring of how it affects other people. Self-centeredness is isolating. It's, it's, it's self-aggrandizing. The confusion of self-centeredness and self-care can probably be best be summed up with this meme I found on Instagram recently: "Respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy." We could do an entire sermon on why that's all about self-centeredness and selfishness, and not self-care. See, there is a limitation to self-care that Jesus. Has something that, that he was calling us to, is to love other people, to treat other people in the same way we expect to be loved and treat ourselves. So here's a, a working definition of self-care. It's the deliberate mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual process in an encountering and differentiating stress and conflict with an attempt to become the best person that God created us to be. Simple, right? I can give you a number of pencil and take a quiz on that definition already. Self-care is, is about being honest with yourself about what causes stress and unhealthiness and harmful emotions and creating ways to navigate through these things. Self-care is about finding activities both physically and emotionally and spiritually that allow you to detox yourself from your stress and your conflict. Self-care allows you to share and nurture yourself because you are, you are giving away so much of yourself to your soul. Self-care allows you to serve others well because you acknowledge your own self-worth and cultivate ways to refill your soul and your will. As someone put it, as we learn to better self-care, we become better people in general. When we are in touch with our own feelings, we can reach out more effectively to others and show love and empathy to them also. And if we're filling our own emotional tanks with self-respect and loving care, we have much more to give to our families, to our friends, to our work, and to the world in general. See, self-care is an essential aspect of the theology of work. Now, when we started the Mosaic Church of Clayton I, all those years ago, I had a strong conviction to be a bi-professional pastor. What that meant was I was going to do work outside of pastoring the church, and I did that for two reasons. Number one was because I knew the church couldn't pay the salary I needed to provide for my family so finding work that could do that made it possible. The second thing is that I wanted to be theologically present in the community, not just do the work of the church, but to be out among the people. So for, for eight years, I pastored Mosaic and then I also did full-time work outside of pastoring full-time. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, there's got to be a downside to that work, right? What could possibly go wrong with constantly putting in 60 to 70 hours a week? But honestly, for years, I managed it so well. For so many years, and then 2016 happened. And I discovered that I was not maintaining these things well at all. And it's it's easy to get so mixed up, to have all the answers, to know how to care for yourself and to not actually do it for yourself. I was almost the brink of burnout. I was tired. I was frustrated. I've been there. You've been there. It felt like it was a downward spiral that I couldn't step out. And so I did something that I knew was what I needed to do. I, I planned a three-day hiking trip to the Appalachian Trail to, to get away. And so I, I left after preaching one Sunday. And and I hit the Appalachian Trail near, near Mount Rogers, and you could feel it and sense it in the air. There was wild ponies roaming all around, but the pungent rhododendrons were everywhere, the rolling hills that sprawl as far as the eye can see. I set up camp and I, I hiked the trails and I ate dinner around 8:30 PM. I, I jumped into my camping hammock and I started to read the Gospel of John. I was going to read John and write down how God was speaking to me through the text. Except when I got to about chapter three and the story of Nicodemus, I realized that I had been burning through the last chapter or two and really not paying attention. And so I went back and I restarted reading, and then I. I I'm doing the same thing over again. I couldn't figure out what was going on. This is what I needed. I needed spiritual renewal. And then it hit me. While I'm swinging in this hammock in the middle of the Appalachian Trail, there are two little girls and a wife at home who would love nothing better than for their daddy and their husband to be. And then that big revelation hit me. When I realized that if I was going to be the best pastor I could be, if I was going to be the best follower of Christ I could be, if I was going to be the best coach and consultant, then I needed to be the best husband and father I could be. I looked at my watch, and it was almost midnight. I slipped out of my hand. I began to pack up my camp, but then a dense fog began to roll into the area. And I don't think it was a brilliant idea to hike back in six and a half miles in the mountains in the fall. And so I woke up the next morning very early. I broke camp. I hit the trail. I called the girls and told them my plans for the day included all sorts of reading and reflecting. I figured a little white lie was okay for what I was about to do. I got in the car and I drove all the way home. And they weren't home when I got there. And so I sat on the front porch. And I that moment when they pulled into the driveway and my wife and I locked eyes with one another. I looked at my kids and I began to cry. Because we all realized this is what we needed in this house. They tell you that self-care is so important, but oftentimes we don't put it into practice until we are completely burnt out. And for the next five days, I spent time with my family. I met with my peer learning group, a fellow group of ministers. We talked about the struggles we had in ministry. We had meals with couples who we could simply just be present and be cared for one another. I learned that self-care needs to be practiced constantly, not just when we can get around people. I think one of the most difficult aspects of self care is establishing boundaries between us and our world. And yet, God makes this his priority. We learn this in the creation story that after God created the world, God rested. This is implemented in the Ten Commandment, to call for us to have rest, to have Sabbath. As many as 64% of people have said that they've canceled vacations because of work stress. Nearly 40% of people who said they've missed out on life events because of bad work-to-life relationship. You see, a key piece of taking care of yourself is knowing where you end and your work begins, and how often do we respond to work emails and texts during family time? How easy is it for us to take a call in the middle of family time? Do you find yourself that you are slowly going through the process of life and you're mowing the grass and even working out and you're constantly thinking about work? And psychologically, this makes sense because we spend our entire day Five days a week, a routine of answering emails, responding calls, responding to needs, taking on crisis, accomplishing these tasks that we don't understand That at 6 o'clock, at 7 o'clock, at 9 o'clock in the evening. All we are doing is staying in that routine. So for others, work can easily become your identity. For those who have had setbacks both personally and familiar in your life, the success in your career defines who you are. Your self-esteem, your self-worth is, is wrapped up in these things. And they begin to crumble as the boundaries around us are not set. And theologically speaking, we have a creator that calls us to care for ourselves, to find rest, to put our work down, and to refresh ourselves. A couple of boundaries for you to consider, for you to, to establish in your life. Literally, when you leave work, leave work at work. Don't bring your laptop or your files or your projects home with you. Shut off your email and work application notifications. Don't answer your emails if you don't have emails coming in. You can actually set up with your iPhone to have notifications cut off at certain times. Find a transition activity for you to shut down from work before you get home. Go to the gym, get a cup of coffee, listening to an audio book on the way home. If you're starting to realize that your identity is wrapped up in your work, then maybe get back to the same thing that you love doing, the things that define you outside of work, your hobbies, your, your passions, whether that be or art or gardening or flunking or, or kayaking or cooking or wrestling with alligators. I don't know what gives you joy, but find those things and put them into practice. Find ways to connect deeper with your family. Boundaries are a essential aspect of self-care because it is intentionally giving your mind and your soul and your body the best in the forty-plus hours that you work and grind every week, and when we can create healthy boundaries between our personal lives and our work, then I believe we can not excel in our work. We can honor God through our work. The text wraps up this way in verse thirteen, but he said, "But but he answered one of them. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to the work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give you one." I want to give to the one who hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I think we need to recognize this is a parable. There, there's only so much that we can dissect from it before we realize that Jesus was speaking in metaphors about the kingdom of God. And I think we found the bedrock and the foundation is that God is calling for to the healthy theology of work. And I think the transcendent truth that all of us will face hardships in our work, whether that be difficult co-workers or bosses or employees or collecting tasks or unfair wages or challenging situations. However, these things do not change who we are called to be and who we are called to follow and what we are called to. Living in the way of Jesus. You know that Jesus calls us to something so much different. And the bedrock and foundation of the theology of work is fixing Jesus at the center of our work. No longer can we compartmentalize our work and our theology and our faith and our personal lives and our hobbies and our family. Our journey with Jesus is to fix Jesus at the center of our very existence. And everything about our life revolves around And when Jesus is firmly fixed at the center of our work, then we can drive towards diligence and the gusto necessary to be successful. When Jesus is firmly fixed in the center of our work, then we can clearly draw boundaries between work and life. When Jesus is firmly fixed at the center of our work, then we can find the character and ethics necessary to encounter crisis and difficult, boss, and destructive co-workers. When Jesus is firmly fixed at the center of our work, then we can discover our true self, the unique passions and gifts and strengths that help us to become more successful, to find better life, and to give us an opportunity to not just advance our careers, but advance the kingdom itself. Christ is calling us to something better. Will we find? Our time of reflection and response this morning is uh, some questions up here on the screen. Take a few moments to quietly reflect on these things. What's your relationship with work? What's the connection between your journey with Jesus and work? And how is God speaking to you through the text?